Good morning, church. We're in Psalm 3 this morning. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke up again, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who, ha- who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Uh, thank you, Charlie, for reading. Um, Reagan, I don't know, did you read Psalm 3 this week and, and use that per, to prepare? I feel like there's a lot, a lot going on between those songs and our message this morning. Um, well, good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, I feel a little bit annoying saying that every single week, the same thing over and over. Uh, I don't know how y'all feel if you feel annoyed by it, but um, there's just so many of you that are new, so many of you that I haven't got to meet. So if I haven't got to meet you, um, if we haven't passed uh, by each other in the halls, please, you're welcome to come say hi uh, after service. I'd love to meet you. Um, But it is true. My name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors here, so I guess I'll just keep saying it. Um, we're not going to, we don't have like this set plan to just go step by step through every chapter in order of the Psalms, but we've been praying and we've been considering what to do uh, in the coming weeks, and so it just happened that the Lord brought us into Psalm 3, and we will be in Psalm 4 next week, so we'll see what happens after that. But um, one thing about Psalm 3, it begins with many, many troubles. And we know that when we see a word repeated, that's important. Many is repeated three times in the first two verses. And so it it causes you to consider your many troubles. And um, when I consider my many troubles, one thing that, that I think about Um, Whether it's relational conflict, whether I'm being accused, or maybe it's even in a moment of crisis. But when I'm feeling these many troubles, I tend to blame myself. I tend to um, carry the weight of that trouble as shame and failure because um, there's something in me, and I don't think it's just in me, but there's something in me that feels like life is supposed to be easy, comfortable, and calm, right? That, that, I know that that's kind of like what we're all going for as Americans, that like leisure is this, this pinnacle of, of the American life. But also we think that, oh, I have Jesus now, so everything's just supposed to be peaches and butterflies. Sorry if you're allergic to peaches. But we have this thing in us. I feel this thing in me that... It's just got to be easy. And if it's not easy, that means I did something wrong. If it's not comfortable, then there's something about me that messed it all up. Am I, just, am I the only one here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I know who that was. 
And so when life is not easy, comfortable, and calm, it's my fault. I failed. I'm incomplete. I'm not enough. And while that is true, I am incomplete. I am not enough. What, what that does to me is it takes, it takes those external moments, the, the, the circumstantial crisis, and it multiplies my troubles by now giving me an internal crisis. And our troubles multiply. And many are saying, there is no salvation for him. And so, like, I, I think when we come here on Sunday mornings, um, one question that we probably are wanting answered is, um, okay, if, if I understand the gospel rightly and I believe that Jesus died uh, for my sins and I'm saved, what do I do tomorrow? Like, how does, how does that matter for my life? I can believe in a true thing and then just move on like nothing happened. Last week, we called that suburban rebellion, that there's, this, there's just this thing in me that, that's like, okay, yeah, I'm fine with God. I'm just going to do life on my own. And our, our mission statement, or our vision statement, rather, here at Redeemer, is that, that we seek to be a multiplying church family that lives and learns the good news of Jesus. How do we do that? And so when we, when we consider our many troubles, how do we respond? Psalm 3 is written on the backdrop of a story just like this. Um, if you have a Bible or you want to grab the one that's uh, in the chair in front of you underneath, there might be one, um, or you have a pocket computer, you can just pull one up on that. Uh, 2 Samuel 13 through 16 tells this story. Now, I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna be referencing a couple of specific verses, but I'm not gonna be walking through those four chapters because that would take the whole um, hour and a half that I have. <laughs> Somebody caught that, thank you. Um, but Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 13 through 16 tells this story, a story that, that on the surface might not sound familiar, but when we get into it and we feel it, then we start to relate. It's a story of sin, a story of brokenness within the family, a story of multiplied trouble that sent ripples and shockwaves throughout the nation of Israel. And so King David, um, king of Israel at the time, King David had many sons. I know Father Abraham had many sons. He's not the only one. King David, he just didn't have a song, but he had many sons too. One of his sons, Absalom, uh, had this strong sense of justice about him. And one of Absalom's brothers, another son of David, violated his own sister and, and treated her shamefully and abused her. And Absalom, with a strong sense of justice, instead of depending on God, took matters into his own hands and killed his brother. And in this moment, he became estranged from his father, David. He fled uh, Jerusalem. And it was in this estrangement, in, in this like separating himself from the family unit, separating himself from the presence of God, that Absalom then began to grow some new desires, not for revenge, but for power. 
And so when he came back to Jerusalem, David wanted to seek reconciliation. He came back to Jerusalem and he placed himself on the gates of the, the, the city of Jerusalem. Now, at the gates is where the judges would stand. And they would, they would try to um, solve civil matters, maybe help resolve some conflict, decide who gets the horse or who gets the cow or whatever happens. Did this person really steal that thing? And Absalom, knowing that David was an imperfect king, stood outside the city gates and began to entice the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, we get this really strange comment that, that, remember, the Holy Spirit wrote Scripture. And so God puts in here in 2 Samuel 14, uh, verse 25, really strange detail. It says, In all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Why? In the middle of this story of Absalom seeking revenge and then wanting to go take his father's throne, why include that? Well, let's look at the whole picture. You've got a good-looking person that everyone in Israel likes to look at. He's acknowledging and appealing to the fears and the doubts of the people. He's affirming their fears and their doubts. And he's promising to do something to help. He's promising a way out. He's promising peace for the fear. He's promising assurance for the doubts. And then we see in 2 Samuel 15, as he, as he just stands out there for a long time, many days, many weeks, 2 Samuel 15, verses 6 and 12 continue the story. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Verse 12, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And so eventually we learn that the, the, the people of Israel, the, the, the nation that God chose David to lead, they turn on this chosen king. And not only that, but his once loyal generals of his military and his counselors in his council betray him. A king betrayed by his own people sounds a little familiar. But it was on this story in the midst of this um, coup that David sees the need to flee to save his own life. And so he leaves God's holy city of Jerusalem. He leaves his throne. He leaves his crown. He leaves his position. You see, Psalm 3 was penned by David, but it's lived by every one of us. This story of pain, of conflict, of of family strife and brokenness. We may not have these very specific, tangible moments, but we know what that feels like. We know the, the pain that comes with family brokenness that never goes away. It was five years between when Absalom killed his brother and was reunited with his father, and things were never right. Psalm 3 comes out of a very human experience so that it can enter into our very human experiences. 
Psalm 3 encourages us to hope and it guides us to pray. And here's here's our, our main thought. Psalm 3 leads us to battle through prayer as we hope in the king. And I'm not talking about David. He's dead. I'm talking about hope in the king, the king of heaven. And so remember, we can't take an Old Testament passage and then just throw Jesus into it and see him where we want to see him. We've got to be responsible readers. And so we're going to walk through that process. We're going to look at this story and understand David's whole story. Whenever it says a Psalm of David, we're meant to recall our memory of David's story. Because David shares a lot with Jesus, as we'll come to find out. And so here's how Psalm 3 will lead us to battle through prayer. There's this four-stage prayer in Psalm 3. First, we confess our troubles. We remember God. We rest in God. And we respond with gratitude and truth. We confess, we remember, we rest, and we respond. I probably could have found an R word for confess. I didn't do that. Sorry for those of you that love alliteration. Let's look at how Psalm 3 leads us to confess. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Um, One of the virtues of our current culture, like in the world, is this value that it puts on honesty and transparency and vulnerability. And yes, you heard me. The world has something virtuous about it. It gets something right. But it doesn't get it right because it discovered it or it came up with it. It gets it right because Scripture gets it right. Scripture gives us this, this guidance and this instruction to be honest and vulnerable and transparent. And I'm not going to break down the definitions of all three and why they differ and how they're kind of similar but not, but we're going to just assume that the world gets it because it comes from God. And it's a common grace that God would draw this virtue out into the world so that evil would have light shine on it and that people would be set free through this virtue of transparency and honesty. And so the world gets it right, but more importantly, I do want to point out, you get it right. When I, when I think about Redeemer, when I think about this church, and, I, and I'm, I look at you guys every week, and I don't know all your stories, but when I, when I look out every week, and I remember your faces and your stories through the week, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 1, Verses 1 through 9, uh, 19. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 19, Peter is, is encouraging the church by explaining to them the purpose of their sufferings. And he gets to the point eventually, and he says, because it, you're, you're like silver that's refined by fire. The fire of trial doesn't break down the silver. It pulls all the impurities out so that what's been there all along would be pure. So I've, I've watched many of you suffer. I've walked with many of you suffering. I know firsthand some of the deepest pains of your life. 
And I have to say, I see the Spirit at work in you because you're here, because you pray, because you sing, because you open this book looking for answers, looking for help from on high. And you don't forget the gospel. And so when I look every single week and I know your stories, I'm encouraged because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is being born here in Redeemer. And it's not that you're just nice to each other. It's not that you don't, you don't um, scold each other on your way in the doors. It's not, it's not that um, you, you have to sit on opposite sides of the room and we've got to work out some petty disagreements. It, it has nothing to do with even what's on the surface, but it has everything to do with the fact that we have suffered and yet we still sing. We have lost, and yet we still praise. We have been beaten and attacked by trial and test and trouble. And yet, week in and week out, every evening and every morning, your faith endures. And I'm not here to applaud you. I'm here to say thank you, God, for bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit in this church. And as I was reading through this, I, I, I genuinely felt encouraged and reminded of this, that we latch on to this truth, that, that our hope is not in our circumstances. We don't hide from things being difficult and uncomfortable and painful, but we hope in Christ the King, okay? Psalm 3, at the end of uh, verse 2, gives us this new Bible study technique. We've, we've talked about contrast and parallel. There's a little bit of that here. We've talked about that rhythm and rhyme. Remember, we've got some of that showing up in Psalm 3. But what we see in Psalm 3 is the introduction of a new Bible study technique. We see the Salah. Um, if you do any Google research on how to pronounce that, it's going to say Saleh or Saleh. That feels weird to me because that's never how I learned it. But um, that word Salah, Saleh, however you want to say that, uh, it, it's on purpose. And we don't know exactly what it means. We, there's no like inscription on the bottom of the scrolls that says, here's what this word means. Um, it, but it's in there, and we can pick up on cues from the Psalms and from some other resources that that word was, was a hint to the, the, the musicians to either stop and catch their breath or to, to stop and kind of retune and, and tighten up their, their strings on the harp. And there's a lot of parallels that I could, like I could preach a whole sermon on that, like the pausing and the, the, the tuning of the strings but what I want to say is um, this, this hint, Salah, just, just hold on. Think about that. It's not so much a, a Bible study technique as maybe it's more like an anti-technique. Um, technique is good. Bible study is very good. We should be studying our Bibles, and we should be applying the appropriate Bible study techniques. Remember, I just preached multiple sermons about reading the text responsibly, but I have to say, technique is not everything. Um, 
He's okay. <laughs> Babies do weird things. Scary things. Let's, that's like our cue. Let's take it. <sighs> Selah. Right? It, this anti-technique reminded me of, I, I used to play on the high school golf team. And when I say that, like I never amounted to anything on the high school golf team. I just played, that's right. We got our, our JVers over here. I was a senior on JV. It's okay. I don't, I'm not insecure about it anymore. <laughs> but I worked hard. I, I tried. I worked, I got lessons from a professional. And all of that was to master my technique. To, to form that muscle memory that, that made technique more permanent, more reliable. It didn't do me any good. It was fun. I enjoyed golf more, that's for sure. But it, we had this guy on the team who, has anybody ever seen Charles Barkley swing a golf club? If you haven't seen that, Google it. Charles Barkley golf swing. Zero technique. He stops in the middle of the swing. That's how bad it is. We had a guy on the team. He was almost that bad. Not quite. But he was so good at golf. But the problem was, you're supposed to aim down, like, at your target. And he would aim off to the side. Because he knew he couldn't hit a straight ball. He didn't care about technique. He was just trying to play for what his swing was. And he would, he would win tournaments. He won medals. All that to say, technique's not everything. Study, apply responsible reading techniques, go through the right steps. But then back off and, and just let it sit. There's something about a still moment that lets the, the previous moment just sink in to your bones. And so this Salah, this instruction to pause, there, are, there is no salvation for him and God. It causes us just to, to stop and sit in the moment that Charles Spurgeon describes um, this fact of life. He says, troubles come in flocks and sorrow has a large family. We have to stop and let scripture interpret us and not stop trying to just squeeze meaning out of it and try to get everything out of it you can in hopes that you, you fill up that incompleteness in yourself. What's real is that trouble isn't going anywhere. So what are we going to do? Trouble's not going anywhere. What are we going to do? We're encouraged and guided to battle through prayer as we hope in the King. So we've, we've learned that Psalm 3 tells us to confess our troubles to God, to remember that he's with us and he works for our good, right? To be honest, but don't get caught up in your troubles. Don't just perseverate on them and, and stay there. Let's read verses three through four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory in the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Can I just pause right there? From his holy hill is on purpose, you got it right, a direct reference to Psalm 2. 
Look at Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, this is God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, where's David? David's in the wilderness. The holy hill, Zion, the city of Jerusalem. He's not there. But David knows and is fully aware that when he cries out, God, who is on the holy hill, the king of heaven and earth, will answer him. Why? Because he is a shield, he is our glory, and he is the lifter of our head. Verses one and two invite us to to come face to face with our reality, right? That I'm incomplete. That that feeling, that sense that I guess only I'm the one feeling. Um, Because remember, someone was like, yeah, you're the only one. And so I'm in good company with David, but this feeling and sense of incompleteness and failure is meant to, to be drawn out of us in verses one and two, and then verses three and four show us, yeah, but God. So let's look for a second at these three um, descriptions of God in, in Psalm three. A shield about me, that, that word about right? He's not just a shield that we hold in front, keeping us vulnerable from attack and behind. And he's not a shield on both sides, leaving us no hands to, to fight with or do anything with. God, in his power, his safety is all-encompassing. We are engrossed in the security of our Father. It's like a cage diver on Shark Week, you remember those? Y'all, any Shark Week lovers? Three of you. Okay, the bull shark. The most aggressive of the sharks. It's like a cage diver trapped inside this steel cage, dropped in the ocean, surrounded by the world's most aggressive sharks. Is protected on all sides. They should be scared. They're scary sharks. You didn't know that I knew my sharks, did you? I watched Shark Week. Our enemies and our troubles might scare us, and they can still beat up against the cage. They can still bite the bars with their sharp teeth. But we're safe. We're held secure in the hand of our Father. You are a shield about me. My glory. God is our glory. Um, Yes, because Genesis 1 says that we are made in his image. That is true. But the connotation here in Psalm 3 is not just because there's this innate God-like design or God-given design that, that is just given to us. But God is my glory. God is our glory because he delights in us. The God of the universe zoomed into this tiny little planet with these tiny little people on it. And he gave himself up for them. These messy little broken people that are so incomplete and so needy. And he made us to where our dependence brings him glory. We we need God to, to fulfill in us what is so empty. And that is why he is our glory. Um. I don't, I don't have to beat myself up for being incomplete anymore. You don't have to beat yourself up for failing. 
for not being enough. Because God made us complete in our joy because we are dependent on him. Let's look at um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It's going to be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But he said to me, this is Paul writing to the church, um, explaining this prayer that he was having about this, this recurring problem, this trouble that seemed to multiply before him. And this is how God responds in prayer to, to the apostle Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. The fact that I look down on you from heaven and I love you and, 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 and I'm captivated by you and I pursued you, that is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now Paul commentates on that. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. That phrase, lifter of my head, has two meanings. Um, as it's written, there's a double meaning there. I think smart English people, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong, that's a double entendre. Um, not in my notes, so could be super wrong about that. But the first meaning is that God being the lifter of our heads. Um, imagine a little boy having failed miserably, made a huge mistake, purposely might have thrown a rock through somebody's window and walks home in shame and guilt, and his father lifts his head. I know that so many of us just need our father just, just to lift our head. God gives us courage and life and energy to persevere, to endure the, the many troubles of life. He lifts our head. When we're crippled by our own incompleteness and shame, verse three and four encourage us to lift our eyes to heaven and to find our glory in the king of heaven and earth. The second meaning is, um, it, the phrase could also be translate, uh, he restores me. So the lifter of my head or he restores me is the other sense that it gives. And this is a direct reference to the, the situation in the moment where David is the king, but he fled his throne and he's in the wilderness. David is clinging to a promise that God will restore him back to his throne with his crown. And that from there, God will be his shield, that God will be his glory. Now, why does this matter? Because it's from this phrase that we get to Jesus. Do you want to see it? Okay, one person's excited. The one who restores me. So David fled his throne. This is set in contrast to 2 Samuel 7. When we see, again, on, on this a Psalm of David, we're meant to consider this, the, the life of David, the story of David. And so what we're meant to think about is 2 Samuel 7 this promise that God made that, that David's throne, his kingship, his lineage will last forever. And, and David had a sense that he wasn't talking about, okay, well, I'm just gonna like, be an eternal being. 
He knew that God's promise was bigger than a, a, just a, a mere person sitting on the throne. But he also knew that God would still save him. And God, he knew God would save him because it was the true heir to the throne that would, that would come after him. Not Absalom, but Solomon. The true heir, the true son, heir to the throne of Israel. And, and this lineage of kingship, of being passed on from true son to true son, makes it all the way down into first century Israel. And we're remembered of how Matthew begins his story of the gospel of Jesus, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus being told in narrative form. Matthew 1.1, he's speaking to the Jews, and here's what he says. This is the way he starts. The book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the promised king. This is the blessing that would bless the world. This is the deliverer, the redeemer, the savior that was promised so many thousands of years ago. Matthew comes into Psalm 3 and says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, true son, heir to the throne. Everything about Matthew 1-1 screams that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 3, of Psalm 2, of Psalm 1. Jesus is the fulfillment of, of this kingship of Israel. This promise that God will preserve his king. Trusting and believing that through this kingdom, we are made eternal citizens of heaven. God is the lifter of our head because he's, because this isn't a little thing. God is the lifter of our head because he is the restorer of David's throne. God is the lifter of our head because it's through David's kingship that Jesus is not only lifted up on the cross in victory over Satan's sin and death, but he's also lifted up from the grave. And he's ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, king over all creation, is seated. He is not anxious about our many troubles because he knows that his kingdom will endure forever. He knows that he is a shield about us that he is our glory and that he will lift our heads. And we lift our heads in hope to this eternal king. At the end of, oh, can't forget this part. This incompleteness that I feel, that, that you feel, we, we ought to lean into that like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 because Jesus fulfilling Psalm 3 is a reminder of, of what we do with this incompleteness, that, that we look to him to fulfill what's lacking in us. And I'll tell you, this is only for those of us who know we're incomplete. 
Like I, I can be okay. I don't have to be afraid not being enough. Because the salvation of Christ is only for incomplete people. The salvation of Christ is only for people who know exactly what shame feels like. Who only know what it means to be low. Who only know what it means to not be enough. To be a failure. To be incomplete. Salah. This, this second instruction to pause leads us into a verse pair. I'm running out of time. I've run out of time, but we're going to make it to the end. It leads us to a verse pair that also invites us to pause. It feels a little redundant, but it's not. I promise. Let's read verses five through six. Remember, we're, we've got David in this chaotic scene, but then all of a sudden he like taps into this peace. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. I lay down and slept. We confess our troubles. We remember God. And then we rest in God and we trust him for deliverance. Um, It's hard to sleep, just period. It's hard to sleep. For some of you, that's like your spiritual gift is sleep. (laughs) I find sleep hard. My children find sleep hard. It's especially hard when our troubles are all around us. This is why we have the phrase, um, this is why I can't sleep at night. It's also why we lay awake wondering, how are they able to sleep at night? But this, verses five and six, um, in the midst of our troubles, when we remember God, when we reflect on his goodness for us, what he's done before us, Have you noticed that when you sleep, you bear the image of death? You are in your most physically vulnerable state. And you cannot sleep without trusting God to wake you up again. Look at, verse, uh, or look at Psalm 23. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to be skipping around. But, but hopefully you just kind of receive this and listen. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have a compass and I can find my way out. No. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And here it is. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You call me and invite me to sit down and indulge myself in your love and your delight. Even though I'm surrounded by troubles. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head. 
I pray that in times of deep trouble, we would not try harder to figure out what is lacking in us so that we can perform our way out of it. Don't do that. But I pray that we would turn to the king of heaven and earth, that we would cry out loud to him, we'd call on his name and and trust that he will respond from his holy hill. That we would sit in this table that he's prepared for us. And we trust that his true king, son of David, son of Abraham, did come, did sleep, did wake. But he also slept the sleep of death. We didn't stay dead because God lifted his head and rose him from the grave. He's, a seat, he's seated at the right hand of the Father from where he reigns on high. But it doesn't end there. Because the promise of his resurrection is a promise of our resurrection, that he would lift our heads and that we too would be raised with him to be eternal citizens of his heavenly kingdom. We confess, we remember, we rest, and finally, and for all of our days, we respond with gratitude and truth. Troubles rise like waves. Our enemies attack us like sharks, but we cry out, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. This is the great Christian confession. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Salah. A cage diver during Shark Week really, truly has no reason to be scared. But imagine that you're that cage diver and the only sharks coming for you are toothless bull sharks with broken jaws. What do you have to be scared of? This is, this is what um, Jesus' victory on the cross and his ascension into heaven after his resurrection, this is what it does. It, it makes our enemies toothless. They're powerless. They cry out. They, they heap doubt on us. The greatest temptation we have is, is to doubt God. And that's the best they can do. They can still scare us, but they're powerless. Because what God has done in his son is that he has plucked us out of this domain of darkness and he has delivered us into the kingdom of the beloved son. This is our transition to communion now. Band, you can come up. Communion is our shared confession that from the Lord comes deliverance. Communion is also our participation and reception of this blessing of salvation given to all people in Jesus. Now, for those of us who believe, we take the bread, we take the cup, the body and blood broken and poured out for us, the body and blood of Jesus. We do this to proclaim his death, to proclaim his victory, to proclaim his resurrection, and to remember the hope that we have in the king of heaven and earth. Would you please join me at the table?